Welcome to the Garden Culture Podcast hosted by me, Bailey Van Tassel. I'm a self-taught gardener, busy wife and mother, and small business owner on a mission to live a garden-inspired life. Each month, we will explore what's going on in the garden and fields, as well as get to know incredible people who infuse their own lives with the magic of the garden. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned here, please visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast. Oh my word, are you in for it today? I have the remarkable Jennifer Jewell on the podcast joining us. She is a writer and a podcaster coming from public radio here in the gardening space, but she has such a cool story about literally joining a one ring circus that takes her into her career and what that taught her as she did get into more of this horticulturalist reporting, journalism, writing, speaking. She's so incredible. You guys, Jennifer Jewell is an absolute treasure and you get to hear from her today. I cannot wait to jump in. Hello, Miss Jennifer Jewell. Welcome to the Garden Culture Podcast. I'm so happy to be here, Bailey. Thank you for having me. Of course. I am so excited to chat because you, I'm a long-standing listener of your podcast, Cultivating Place. And I'm so honored just to get to chat with you because you have such a beautiful wealth and breadth of knowledge, not just in gardening, but in ecology and just nature and its rhythms, in botany, so many different directions that I feel like is really, really expansive. Um, Yet you make it very approachable and help people digest what can be complicated topics in a really easy and beautiful way. Oh, that is so nice. Thank you. I, I think our job is done here now, Bailey. Yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> welcome. We'll talk to you soon. I'm going to keep listening. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that, though, because I think, you know, gardening is one of these things we're, we're called to. And some of us are called sooner and more, you know, kind of aggressively than others. And um, and it is this really simple impulse, you know, pick that flower, eat that carrot, enjoy this butterfly in this space or the rain or whatever. But, you know, so it is both very easy and instinctual, but it is also complicated. And um, trying to invite and welcome as many people into this kind of relationship that you and I both enjoy I think is one of the greatest callings that I have in my life. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. I wonder, have you done much thinking on, is there a type of person or do you think it's just a matter of when you're exposed to gardening that you become this person? Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I do. And I have done a lot of thinking about that. And in fact, I think that thinking really kicked off and deepened and became nuanced when I had little children. So I am the mother of a professional gardener mother and a wildlife biologist father. So like this was definitely the water we swam in, plants, Mm. their animals, their spaces, uh, for flowers, for food, for environment. Um, I have two sisters, both of whom love a garden both of whom love to garden, but not quite like me. Mm. And 
they, you know, they also maybe don't need to intellectualize it or think about all of its different facets the way I have always wanted to chew on. And so my mother would say, not in an unkind way to my sisters, but I think just in an acknowledgement of how much I was called to the garden, um, she's my real gardener. That's what she'd Mm. say. And I'd be very proud. But (laughs) then I had two daughters, Bailey. And as you know, like your kids, you know, there's all these discussions in highbrow places about nature versus nurture, blah, blah. Um, But anybody who has born children and then hung around with them intensely for a couple of years uh, (laughs) knows that they come with some pretty predetermined sets of uh, personality traits and, and, and instincts of their own. And so when I had the great pleasure of meeting my two daughters on the day they popped out of me, um, they are both gardeners and they are so different. Mm. One of them is the like digging kind of gardener. She wants to dig, she wants to plant, she wants to harvest. The other daughter is very like tidy, methodical. She wants to design. She Mm. wants to design spaces. She wants to design floral arrangements. She wants to pick flowers and put them together in combinations. Like two very different souls, Mm. but still both gardeners. And, you know, the longer I do this work, much as you are doing, and as I have been doing it, especially this last 10 years, almost 10 now for Cultivating Place and six years before that with the radio program that preceded it, the more I learn about what it means to be a gardener and what gardeners look like and what they're actually doing on the ground, because, you know, and I I say this, I think pretty frequently that it's kind of like our signature is even though we all have one, they're all a little different. And so how and why we garden and what that actually looks like based on our our own ancestors, our histories, our places, our climates, our conditions, our families, and what they allow us to do, it's all going to look different, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. I do think that there is a component when you begin gardening where it really changes the way you see the world and the way you think. Mm. And like you said, we each have our own unique signature and sort of like mark, it forces us to leave as a result of just starting to see life in a different way. Definitely. I I could not agree more because I was definitely brought up gardening. As I say, it was part of my DNA. My my mom had a big vegetable garden. Uh, We had a lot of flowers. She was a floral designer as well. But it wasn't until I had my own garden of my own as a young adult and this little space that I got to do whatever I wanted with. And there was both the fun and freedom of that, but there was also the responsibility of like, oh, wow, like Mm. my mother is not going to come in and tidy this up for me. Like she isn't here. I have to put my lessons to work. And, you know, so you experiment and you learn and the more you experiment and fail and learn or succeed and learn, uh, you're exactly right. It changes how you see other people. It changes how you see your wild environments. It changes how you see economics. It changes 
it changes everything. And, and that's why, you know, when I had my own two little people, it was really important to me that I tried to pass both the work of, of relating to plants and gardens and the environment, but also just the joy that I get out of it to my girls. And they're now in their twenties and they both totally get it, which is Mm. great. Okay. I want to, I'm going to like put a pin in that because I want to ask you some in-depth questions about that. But before we do, so you mentioned your parents and you very much were raised in this family um, that prioritized gardening, introduced you to gardening. Your mother had a vegetable garden. You were close with her. Um, And then you had your own garden. What was the journey like through there? I mean, now your career revolves around writing and speaking about gardening, reporting on it almost in in a sense. How did you get, what did that path look like in terms of kind of where you are professionally now? Right. Well, I graduated, I knew that there were horticultural career paths, which sometimes people don't. I knew that because I saw it modeled in my mother. I knew there were environmental career paths because I saw that modeled in my father. I didn't want to do either of those things from the outset. I wanted to be a writer. and. I always wanted to be a writer. I went to college. I took the long route through. I started at Barnard. I was there for a year and a half in New York City. And I think, especially looking back, um, I really was suffering from like nature deficit disorder. And I couldn't take the city in the late 80s. I was just visiting my own daughter in the city this last week. And She's just started a master's program at Columbia, and it is a very different city than it was in the late 1980s. And I'm very grateful for that because she has plenty of access to green and outdoors. But I didn't at the time, and I didn't understand maybe that that's what I was missing. And so I left school, went to work, worked for a because you're getting all the details now, Bailey. I went. Yeah, I to work for a details. one a one ring traveling circus. And I worked for that for five years. No, literally. All the low, literally. Yeah. Literally a one ring (laughs) European style traveling circus. Yep. That was founded by my, uh, my uncle. And then my mother and father were kind of, uh, helpers, investors, and also they worked with us. Um, and it's called Circus Flora. It still performs in St. Louis every year, but we used to in 86, 88, 90, 91, uh, we, we traveled around, especially the East, uh, and the Southeast and, uh, performed at performing arts festivals. Oh, wow. And all the while I kept trying to return to get my schooling under me. Like I knew I wanted to finish my four-year degree. And ultimately I left the circus in order to do that. And I finished up at Harvard and uh, graduated with a degree in world literature. And so I sort of figured like I had two options there. I had, I could be a teacher or I could uh, work in you know, literature, whether that was publishing or editing or something. And uh, ultimately, on that stretch of my path, I got a job at Microsoft as a writer editor for their their Encarta Encyclopedia when hmm. it was still going and in its er, some of its early iterations. And I worked on all the English, uh, you know, articles and editing and contributing and working with contributors for that, which was great. 
that five years where I was located uh, with my former husband in Seattle, one of the best gardening climates Mm. on the planet, uh, that is where I got my first taste of what it was to have my own garden. And, you know, that was kind of an unreal experience because anybody who lives in Seattle knows it's a really easy, good climate. So you just throw something in the ground, you know, I think I'll do old roses. I think I'll do raspberries. I think I'll do monkshood. I think I'll do, and they just, they just grow. Mm. And so you think, you think you're a great gardener. (laughs) And I, I actually lived in a, we lived in this great little bungalow um, up in the Ballard neighborhood that had been owned by an elderly Norwegian couple. And they were clearly gardeners. Mm-hmm. They they had these old raspberry canes in place. They had these shrubs, none of which, like when we moved in, everything was kind of dormant. And um, as they started to leaf out in the spring and then bloom, you'd be like, oh, you were so smart mm. to plant that Philadelphus right by the back door where you were going to get its scent. That is one of my spring. top favorite plants, Philadelphia, yeah, by the way. Right? So good. And um, and I'd never lived in a place where I could grow it because I grew up at 8,000 feet in Colorado. So, so then I got the bug, right? I really mm. got the bug. Like I was up at 5 a.m. I was going to all the nurseries. I was having fun. And that is what kind of piqued my interest. And I I went to the Microsoft leaders and I said, you know, not like Bill and Jennifer, but like my Encarta leaders and said, I think we ought to put in articles about all the big gardens in the world. Mm. And they were like, yeah, no, probably not. And (laughs) so, but it got me thinking that I would love to write about gardens and gardening. Like this was a way to bring the two things I loved together and justify spending so much time on it because someone would pay me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, anyway, I'm, I'm on a really long winded, uh, storyline here. Uh, should, should we unpack that at all yet? Well, yeah, no, I think you should, because my mind's going in a million places. Um, basically we're going to need to start, I want to start like a garden tourism situation where you like travel the world and get to go see these spectacular gardens. But to your point, I still don't feel like there's, oh my gosh, there's so much to say. Gardening in America culturally, it's just, that's my mission. Even with this podcast is like, I want more people to, you know, love it like they do in Britain or in other parts of the world. And because it's not as accessible, even in the encyclopedic sense, like you're saying, where it's like, we should get some coverage of this and people are just meh. So yeah, I would love to hear your perspective on that. I think that is absolutely true. I think that, uh, something, you know, and, and I don't know exactly, I'm not a sociologist, but you know, you look back over the 1950s to now And you see that kind of end of World War II era. You see the uptick in leisure time, in middle class, Mm -hmm. in suburban environments, and the incredible rise of marketing to sell products to that group of people in those places. And that, to me, is where we see this big divergence between gardening as a part of our cultural literacy and gardening as commodity. And at the same time, yep, 
No, it just gave me a light bulb because women are who are being marketed to the most. They're that they have the purchasing oh, yeah. power, but it turned women into buyers instead of doers. And it it I think we always were doers. We were still doers, but because we were also the buyers and um we were being marketed to, it's not that we necessarily stopped gardening, although I, I think there are a large group of people who own gardens and don't garden that fit that category. But I would say that we just stopped being represented as doers in Mm. the mainstream Mm. media. So that's the point at which, you know, Jennifer Jewell starts writing about gardens in House and Garden and Gardens Mm. Illustrated and Colorado Homes and Lifestyles and Old House Garden and la la la. By the time I reach this scenario, Everything is focused on the perfect picture, the perfect mm. setup, the like the perfection of the product so that we sell. Whereas, you know, I think previously, you know, we there was just a lot more holistic conversation about what it meant to garden or be a gardener. And and it wasn't driven by marketing. It was driven by real interest in the group of people who were doing it. You know, and at the same time we're seeing the rise in pesticides and herbicides and and lawns and I mean I think there's a lot of work to be done in researching that, but I will say that one of the gifts of having been on this one ring traveling circus for a while was that I was put into the community of enormous international diversity. There were Italians, mm. there were Germans, there were Swedes, there were there were Native Americans on one season. There were uh, you know, Asian people. And so this gave me a clue, which I think again, we're sort of insulated from in the United States to large extent, um, as to how different cultures see these things differently. They see their food differently, they see their mm. gardens differently, they see the connection between their gardens and their food and their medicine and their happiness. They they see things differently. And so, and I come from a, a strongly British background. My mother's father immigrated uh, in the 1920s. So I have a lot of relatives still in England and they, they do hold gardening, you know, right up there with the great rit- literature you've read mm-hmm. with the great, you know, plays or, or operas you've seen. And so anyway, I mean, I think we're now digressing into uh, an esoteric conversation. But the important thing is that when I had been writing for, for the shelter magazines for a little over seven years, I realized how unhappy it was making me, mm. that it was isolating gardeners into this commodity category mm. and perpetuating that kind of conversation. And it pissed me off enough that I said, I don't want to do this anymore. Like you, you actually can't pay me enough to write it this way anymore. Mm. And that's when I um, moved to Northern California and it, it struck me that public radio was a much better way to go because it didn't matter. First of all, it was completely accessible to everybody. It didn't cost $5 or $7 or whatever, um, $15 for, you know, the bigger magazines. Uh, and it was not about what we looked like or what our gardens looked like, but it was about how we did it and why we did it and and the stories and the voices. And so that is what got me to you talking to me now, baby. <laughs> I love that so much. 
I think that's really important. And I think it is interesting to think about just that evolution, because I think also with when 2020 hit, we had this sort of victory garden revival moment, um, Mm -hmm. which adds a whole nother layer. But I, I think it's now becoming even more mainstream for people to think about the undoing and sort of the biodiversity approach and scarcity when it comes to seeds and really needing to have some self-reliance and not caring so much about what it looks like because we really just want to be able to continue to survive and and to garden and to lean into that. And we're also having a mental health crisis in the country and all the things, because I think gardening pretty much solves most problems. But, um, and I mean that like actually seriously. <laughs> I, I, I you know. do. It can. It, it can. can solve most problems, right? We also know, you know, that if there were 38% of all households engaged in gardening prior to the pandemic and 75% over 100 million households self-describing as engaging in gardening post-pandemic, we know we are also part of the problem. We are also part of perpetuating white exceptionalism and supremacy of perpetuating chemical overdose in all spheres of our life with our gardens of you know introducing and perpetuating invasive plants in our wildlands like all of this can be attributed to horticulture and gardening also but done the right way done in this other way that you are talking about, this great undoing, uh, we absolutely are part of the solutions. And I think more and more people do see it that way. I mean, the pandemic came, you know, bang with the social justice chaos after uh, the the Floyd murder. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think those two things really brought to light the cultural and multicultural importance of gardening. not just, you know, affluent people gardening on the weekends with a drink in their hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it brought to light the importance of fresh air and produce. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not like we are really going to grow all our own food. I don't grow all my own food. Do you grow all your own food? No, I'm like at 70%. So you are super, super close compared to most people. But the economics of that for most people actually don't make sense, right? Totally. Like, it, it is not less expensive to try and grow all your own food, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you have another job um, that actually pays the bills, right? <laughs> so, so right. Th- this, so we 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 turned to gardening for some other reason, and mm-hmm. it's it's that I think rational, irrational desire to be engaged with our own survival, even if we can't actually survive on our own. Mm, I love that. Okay. So I want to actually just jump like pivot quickly into talking about your new book. I have it in my hands and it's because it just perfectly plays into two things I highlighted. Um, So you just wrote a book called What We Sow on the Personal, Ecological, and Cultural Significance of Seeds. And I highlighted something that it's, and it's early in the book. Um, In this way, the state of our seed reflects who we are as people, one measure of who we have been and who we will or could be. And then skip over a bunch of really great stuff. And you go into say, when we're separated from this complex relationship, when it is sanitized into sterility for us, we all lose. And I think that is 
the juncture that we're at sort of is we're sort of, we've just cracked open the casing of the seed and we're reemerging. And that's ugly sometimes. That's what we hope. We hope. We want that chaotic breakthrough that mm. is germination, I think. Uh, because I do think that's exactly where we are, Bailey. We are in this place where most of us, even those of us who are gardeners, and this is why I wrote the book, right? I I was there in March of 2020 wondering what the heck was happening that we were having such a, a shortage or perceived a shortage in our seed supply. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it had to do with a bunch of different things. It had to do with the supply chain faltering because it's global. Uh, we It had to do with small seed companies being overwhelmed by demand. But the phrase out of stock when it comes to the seed we want triggered this primal fear of if we can't get seed, how do we survive? Because everything, like literally almost everything that we make our lives possible with, food, clean air, clean water, the environment, our clothes, our houses, right? They all come back to seed somewhere. You know, even the animals we eat, eat seed. Mm -hmm. And they need the seed plants. To, to eat as well. So yeah. it was this moment of like, what don't I know about seed? Like I've been, you know, I'm an old person. I've been doing this a long time. How do I not know some of these things? And so in many ways, it was this trying to get through those layers of disassociation because of how convenient it's been made for me um, that I can, you know, go to Lowe's or Home Depot or the hardware store, or even the grocery store. And like, oh, look, there's some pea seeds. I'll pick some up and not ever think about who owns that seed, who grew that seed, how was the seed cared for, how were the people cared for, how was the land cared for, you know, what's on that seed. So how is it going to grow and interact with the environment or me and my family's health? Like I knew none of that. And I, I thought that it was really important as a human who professes to love gardening and the world around her that I should know that. Mm. I think there are so many different paths to get to this point of questioning like the questions we need to ask. And mm -hmm. um, I had a conversation recently with someone who was reminding me how much we outsource discretion. So for example, people that are like buying all of their groceries at Whole Foods, assuming that Whole Foods is going to run the process for us and make sure everything's right. clean and organic and fair wage and it's a B Corp and they're giving back and 1% for the climate and blah, 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 we're carbon neutral. And they're not. No one is vetting right. information for you the way you should for you. And there, it's there's so many layers and so many greenwashing and false regulations and just labels and whatever. So my question for you in the seed, from the seed perspective, because it reminds me of like when your hormones are imbalanced and it's like, you can't see hormones, but like something's off. And I feel like with seeds, it's kind of similar. It's, they're so small and so forgettable. You kind of throw them in the ground and they turn into something magnificent, but it's just like I don't know. They're so, it's so complex, but think of like a poppy seed, how tiny it is. Right. So how right. did writing this book and researching it change your perspective on 
gardening and sort of your role in the ecosystem of that? Well, I think it did exactly what you just described uh, first off is that um, in recognizing that there was a lot I didn't know, the research affirmed for me that there was a lot I didn't know. <laughs> and that I and most gardeners I know have abdicated that discretion uh, or due diligence mm. and responsibility to the powers that be, you know, mm. whether that's the president or God or the organic food. Uh, you know, regulation committee or, or whomever, like I just never thought about it. And so the second thing it did ties right back into you saying that gardening changes the way you see everything. Doing the research on this book changed the way I see everything that I garden with and, and bringing it back to this little seed. And it made me appreciate, first off, the great diversity of humans who are out there on the ground trying to protect, research, steward, share this seed knowledge. Many of them are in marginalized cultural communities who are fighting against all odds anyway, and yet they are carrying this weight. I'm thinking of the indigenous peoples across the U.S. I'm thinking of the seed keepers of the African diaspora and the Asian diaspora uh, really doing a lot of this heavy lifting and carrying for the rest of us. Um, and uh, it also made, so it made me appreciate this great diversity of humans fighting for the protection and integrity of seed. But it also just reminded me something that I, I know, but I take for granted, even I, the great diversity of seed plants and how they have co-evolved for so long into this just unbelievable amount of ingenuity and beauty and productivity that again we you know is like a green blur behind us but it it made me focus on oh that that blue oak has very different acorns than that valley oak and that one might be a cross between the two because it's even a little different. And that's so interesting how, you know, the poppy or, or the lupin or whatever seed is coming out in any season to really like see it and marvel at how it has come up and been able to do the job it's doing, which is to hold, ripen, and then get that seed out into the world. I mean, it is just miraculous. It, if, if anything uh, makes you believe in faith, mm. the, the, the journey of any seed, let alone all of the seeds, uh, will do it. So, yes, I love that. I couldn't agree more. Um, I remember asking people on my little Instagram, like, why they gardened and what felt fulfilling to them. And I'm a, a majority of people actually could and did recognize that it was actually just the awe of seeing something grow so miraculously right in front of your eyes that like hooked them and kept them going in a very yeah. humble sense. Um, but something yeah. else that you mentioned in the book, and it reminds me actually of an African proverb where they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And there's a part of the book where you talk about how seeds and plants are meant to thrive and um, 
sort of like become prolific and spread, but they also, as a unit in a biodiversity perspective, create the perfect setting to coexist and to sort of nurture each other and thrive together. And so that relationship is really interesting. And I hadn't thought much about that because in the vegetable garden, which is where I spend most of my time, um, you have to cultivate that relationship to a degree. Although I, I need to be doing more like permaculture and that's a different subject for a different day. But like you're saying in nature, actually, it's like the seeds know what to do to both go, go alone and go together. And so I would love yeah. to hear you chat more about that. Well, you know, and that was an interesting section of the research and it brings up so interestingly the constant conversation in our world about, are we supposed to be competitive or are we supposed to be collaborative? You know, Mm. even our children get mixed messages on this in school, like, you know, Mm -hmm. work together on this group project, but then don't look at each other's answers on the test. Um, and you know, don't help each other on the test. And it's, it's an interesting overlay, our cultural bias on these two different things. Um, and you know, I've, I've even experienced, uh, the kind of questioning of it in the way I hear, uh, science people, specifically like evolutionary biologists talk about the long-term relationship between, um, plants and their larval food, you know, their larval hosts or who they are larval hosts for. Mm. And they often use terms of like war and an arms race and Mm. battling. And whereas there's another way to look at it in this collaborative way, you know, and I, I think in many ways, Robin Wall Kimmerer gave us some of this language to really use and think about in different ways, uh, from her, you know, braiding sweetgrass and the book before it, Gathering Moss, that has infused our culture in such a way that we can have this conversation. And it's, it, it has all these cultural, but also ecological, um, consequences and, and results. So the importance of a balance between the two seems to be what I experience seeds figuring out is sometimes they do have to grow so fast that they outshadow, you know, they overshadow or shadow out their, uh, their competitors. But sometimes they have to figure out how to share the mycorrhizal, you know, sugars and rewards if they're all gonna exist, right? And ecosystems, this is why the science of ecosystems is so fascinating because you're trying to figure out like what is the the push and pull or the mm-hmm. give and take of collaboration and competition so that the whole system, which is now working together, thrives uh, without one person taking over and being a bully and everybody else dying out. And, you know, certain ecosystems are better at this and others, mm-hmm. uh, you know, go into a forest canopy succession in which everything you know, below is shaded out. Um, but then eventually a fire comes through and takes that out. And, you know, so there, are, mm-hmm. there are these checks and balances, but, um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered the question you asked, but we went on an interesting conversation. No, you did. I think it's just fodder for life. Like it's just so rich yes. an analogy for the way that we're living our lives and how to think about it. And I think 
even going back to you talking about when you had your kids, almost every single person that I have spoken with at length about gardening has a moment that ties back to their childhood and to that part of their journey. And someone infused the love of gardening in them or they experienced it to a certain degree. Um, mm-hmm. But again, it's it's all very evolutionary. And I feel like that's when we're our most innocent and where like the rubber's kind of met the road and you're figuring things out. Um, but it's all very malleable and it's all evolving over time. And I think, you know, we're all just kind of on our own journey and it's, you know, it gets all spiritual yeah. from there. But um, it, does. it really does. <laughs> no, I know, which I love, which I love. And I think that it's been really freeing to have the garden as a backdrop for those conversations and those lessons with my kids. Um, I saw something online and a woman was trying to talk about like the birds and the bees and was like, every, and it was a very um, sort of like sterile conversation, but she was like, now it's pumpkin season and everyone can go get their pumpkins and talk about pumpkin seeds and reproduction to like trickle in conversations about like sex ed basically. And I was thinking to myself, like when I grew up on a little hobby farm and it was part of life and it was woven into our conversations, like really naturally, because we were actually seeing life and death happen. We were both cultivating it and just bearing witness to it. And it made me, my heart ache a little bit for the fact that it's just not a part of every day for everyone and that you have to like go buy a pumpkin from Trader Joe's and make it a conversation about the seeds. It's not just happening outside for you. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so that is just a little heartbreaking from that. I'm just like, God, what happened to like this? It just is. And we get to witness like the beauty of it and, and, and the hardship behind all of it. So I don't know. It was just, it was just making of that when it comes to seeds, that analogy. And I was just like, well, we, we've actually already, it's, it's naturally trickling in because, um, and, and we're in suburbia. It's not, I'm not on the farm anymore, you know, but, um, another story for another day. Well, and right. But I think, you know, I think our society has structured itself in such a way and we have allowed it to happen that we are so in one way protected, but in another way divorced, uh, from how life cycles work, that it's going to take some long, hard work from people like you and me who want that to be back as part of our everyday, that we reintroduce it in the park, in the garden, in the school, at church, wherever it might be. Um, that it's not just going to happen on its own. Although, you know, with climate change and storms and and catastrophes like, you know, bigger wildfires and bigger hurricanes, maybe it will happen actually, mm-hmm. because, uh, y- there is no insulating yourself from that. Yeah. Um, and those I think are, you know, to some extent, those are our choices right now. Like, yeah. do we want to just let climate change take it all for us? Or do we want to actually take back some responsibility and accountability and in doing so, we embrace these systems that we have so disrupted. Yeah. So how has this, what you know now about seeds and plants, how has that informed the way that you garden just in your normal garden, like in your backyard garden? Yeah. Well, it has made me and my partner, uh, because he was certainly a co-creator on this journey for sure. Um, It has made us 
a lot more uh, willing to try new crops that we used to buy as starts as seeds. Mm. And it has made us uh, much more curious and aware of when a plant is is setting seed and when that seed ripens and then collecting that seed and giving it a try again the next year. You know, and in some cases, in some plants, this is sometimes a two-year process. It's not a one-year single season process. You know, Mm -hmm. we have our biennials, like, so your carrots, for instance, are a perfect example of this. If you let that carrot overwinter in its second year, it will send up its green from that same root, and that green will actually bear a flower, and that flower will create your carrot seed. But you have to actually let the carrot last that long and not harvest it. Um, And I think that there's something about respecting the full cycle from seed all the way back to seed that allows us an access point back into the intimacy with these systems exactly, with these Mm. cycles and these systems. And that we spend so much time trying to interrupt or direct those cycles. We deadhead, we prune, we, we cut back, we, you know, we, we do everything we can to avoid senescence. Mm. Uh, And therefore we don't get the rich beauty of regeneration on the other side of senescence. Mm. And, um, so there's, you know, again, there's so many parables right there, but, uh, but I think it's fun to witness and it teaches us things we don't know that we should know. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that there's the concept of delayed gratification that is mm. so, especially I, I, we're in such like a dopamine generation and era right now. Yes. Um, and so it's just like, we want everything to be magical and happening immediately and over and over and more and more. And I feel like even in the gardening space too, it's kind of how do we harvest get the, the perfect m- flower, get the, perfect- the most oh, yeah. flowers, right? Like I, here's me and my like mountain size of dahlias or zinnias <laughs> or whatever it is, right? No, it is. It's about being perfect and bigger and better. Uh, and at the the peak of what we see the peak of beauty. Um, but there is beauty in all those stages and, yeah. um, it's important. Well, and I think as it's funny, cause I do a lot of educating on a lot of people, like, how do you, how do we plan the garden? And it's like, okay, we start with a goal. So like, how, why are you growing and, and this and that? And it's always like, okay, well, like, what do you want to eat and what do you enjoy and what's for fun and what's for beauty and what's to share? And it's like making me think just in our conversation and from reading the book, you know, we need to be planting even more to allow for the life cycle and to have that like reciprocity. Speaking of Robin Wall yes. um, yeah. to allow, you know, I guess it almost makes me think of like the rules of foraging where you only take, you know, maybe a third of yes. what's available to you and not the first one that you come across. Like if you can plant a third more than you even think you have space for and that you're going to use just to allow to exist and complete the life cycle and then give to you over and over in the way naturally it should occur. Yes. Um, yeah. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I think that's really important. And I think that's, that's the next level, right? That's like leveling up yeah. as a gardener is like when you, you know, start to do right. that. I and I think, that. you know, t- to me, one of the great gifts of writing this book was that leveling up for me. I mean, I've mm-hmm. been gardening for, if I'm 58, I've been gardening for 55 years. And the 
there, there was a big leveling up here and the, the book is not easy. It's not how pretty your seed garden is. It's not how to save seed. It's not, you know, why seed is gorgeous. Uh, it is a heavy lift on, on how far wrong I think we've gone in some cases in the way we tend to seed and how many models for how we could do it better are available to us if we go out and learn from them and support them. And, you know, as I said to you, I think for some people, if they pick the book up, they'll be like, oh my God, this is so hard and heavy. But I would definitely urge you to like push through and see if you can't get to the other side of the hardest parts. Don't avoid them, like wade through them. And when you get to the other side of the seed keepers who are showing the way forward, I think you will feel a, a deep gratification. For sure. And I was sharing this with you offline, but I felt very, I loved the book. It, it's dense in a sense where there, you need to read it thoughtfully, but that's why you should be reading it. It's creating beautiful thought and awarenesses we didn't have, but you're weaving a really gorgeous story about your mother and about, like you said, humanity that I think actually helps you continue to read through the book and really feel a resonance with what you're saying. I think it's a really important read and I thought it was lovely and I'll be sharing about it obviously with all my people, but um, <laughs> obviously, so the book's available, is the books available on anywhere you can buy books anywhere. right now? Anywhere you can buy books. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you're certainly welcome to buy it from my website yes. and I'll send you a signed copy. But if anybody out there buys it from anywhere and they send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com, I will be happy to send them a signed book plate in the mail. Um, and I just, yeah, appreciate, appreciate that. I Thank love you. that. Um, okay. I hate to do this, um, but I have two more questions for you. So number one, other than your own book, what is your favorite gardening book? And I'm like really excited to know your answer. You can give me two or three. There are so there's, there are some great ones out there and there are ones that I go back to over and over again. Um, uh, braiding sweetgrass right up there for me. Jamaica Kincaid's My Garden Book from the 1990s. Mm. Genius. Um, I no, wait, I have to look at my uh my Beth Chado's Gravel Garden because I have always lived in the US West, more or less. Mm. And her gravel garden was one of the like really early books that was promoting dry land gardening for beauty and diversity. Mm. Um, the other one is a writer and a plantswoman out of Colorado, Lauren Springer, and she wrote The Undaunted Garden. Mm. And it is just gorgeous. Um, if you really need a philosophy book, which you might all really need, um, Mirabelle Osler's In the Eye of the Garden Ooh. is a beautiful book of essays. Ooh, okay. Uh, okay. I'll be, I'm just like actually potentially addicted to consuming all garden information. <laughs> it's yes. like my poor husband is like, really, really? Like the books by my Another one? Yeah. Another one? It's like, yes. Um, 
Okay. And then my next question is what's next for you? So you just wrote this book. Maybe you're taking a breather. Maybe that's the most annoying question. It's like, oh, you have three kids. Are you going to have more? But <laughs> um, what is next? Thankfully, I have two and I'm done. Um, <laughs> it's actually now might not be 20s. too late for you, though. You never know. No, no, it is. It is. I, I, sh- I share that in the book. It is now we are past that capacity, <laughs> which is great. Um, you know, I, uh, I will be working on the podcast as long as I possibly can. Um, I'm not sure how long what that means. I, I definitely. Um, you know, I do so much speaking around the country that uh, I, I can't imagine I will slow up on that anytime soon. And I, I, I will, I know I have one or two more books, garden books specifically in me, but right now, I mean, I have written these three books back to back to back, uh, starting with The Earth in Her Hands that published in 2020. Um, and so, for right now, I'm going to glide That's for a just a little bit and reconsider in mid 2024 and see if, you know, when and if I want to sign any any deadline agreements about a next book. But okay. um, yeah, for now, I, I want to enjoy my garden a little bit, baby. Yeah, you I know, know what I'm talking. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. And I hope if you come to Southern California, I can buy you dinner and we can get together because it's just been such a joy to get to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much. I would love it. We will we will definitely cross paths in okay. person in the garden one day. Yes, I love it. Well, thank you for today. Thank you for being with us. And really quickly, you did mention it, but everyone, where can everyone find you? Just like, where's your home online? Cultivatingplace.com is my website and my only social media platform that is active and not just fed into by this one is Instagram. And so it's cultivating underscore place. And really happy to engage there. It's just me. I do everything. So some weeks I don't get to posting on Instagram, but I try. So be patient with me. I love it. I love it. Okay. We will chat soon. Thank you so much. All right. I hope this episode has been balm for the soul and inspiration for the heart. I would love if you left a review to let me know your thoughts or anything you're interested in learning. And I'm so grateful that you found this space. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned, visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast.